Considering the different rooms that designers are in, the way they move through the world, what they're looking at globally in terms of their own work and the number of theaters they're in, I just find it remarkable that more designers are not in genuine leadership positions. Hello and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. My name is Rob Kramer, and I'm the founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. And I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we're spending time with set designer Rachel Hauck. 2019 was a banner year for Rachel. Two of her designs were on Broadway in acclaimed productions, the Tony-nominated play What the Constitution Means to Me, and the musical Town, which won the Tony for Best Musical and also earned Rachel her first Tony for scenic design. The recognition came after almost three decades of consistent work in the theater, starting in her hometown of Los Angeles and then in regional theaters all over the country, from the renowned Oregon Shakespeare Festival to the O'Neill National Playwrights Conference in Connecticut, where she served as the resident set designer for 10 years. When she and her partner and frequent collaborator, director Lisa Peterson, moved from Los Angeles to New York, Rachel quickly established herself as one of the most in-demand designers for the city's most respected off-Broadway theaters. And in 2016, she received an Obie Award for Sustained Excellence of Set Design. Rachel spoke to us from Irvine, California, where she spent much of the pandemic looking after her mother. I asked her if, when the pandemic hit, she had a number of projects that were immediately put on hold. Oh, completely. Yeah, no, I had I um, I had an awful lot of projects that were that were completely stopped, and the calls came one after another, in a totally heartbreaking way. And then some of them were optimistically rescheduled and canceled again. And even though we expected that that might happen, and when you got the, you know email telling you that there was going to be a phone call. Um, you know, there was no question about what it was and it continued to be hard every single time. I didn't, uh, you know, I went, I was seeing plays every night. Um, and the last thing I saw was Cambodian rock band. Um, and then I went and over to the place, uh, across the street where everybody in the theater world goes for a drink after a show on 42nd street. And there were six people in it. Um, and it was, unbelievable. I called my friend Mara Isaacs, who happened to be in town, and we went over to Mara, Mara's and drank a bottle of champagne and said, okay, here we go. <laughs> and then I went back to my, I went back home. I flew to California for two days to see my mom, which turned into two weeks. And then I came home and didn't see my studio again for three months. And uh, when I went downtown and walked into that studio, you know, it was as we'd left it, my assistant had worked for a couple of days past me. She left a light on because <laughs> uh, she'd left in a hurry um, and uh, just before they locked down the city. And I walked into the studio and it was heartbreaking because it was a, like a mausoleum of dead plays. There was an enormous pile of mail um, and all the models were still out and the plant was dead. <laughs> And it was truly shocking. It was truly shocking. What's the mental transition you've had to go through working, I imagine, incredibly long hours and being productive and having success to suddenly it stopping? 
it's you know it's it was crushing <laughs> and shocking um it's been very uh you know we were all i don't think any of us realized how high a level we were functioning at until it stopped um and how many you know to to do productions of that scale and you know in multiple venues and to begin we were beginning to think about the tour at that point and uh one show was already on tour and you know it was, I think I was in genuine shock for a very long time, um, a month, six weeks. You know, I did a couple of podcasts early on in which people were like, well, how are you doing? And I was like, you know, not well, <laughs> just in shock. Um, and to be, to have had such a game changing year and then to suddenly come, come to a stop it, it is shocking personally. And yet it is impossible to not be aware how lucky we were. My mother was okay. Lisa and I were okay. We had our health. We had a place to be. We were financially, um, if I had not happened to have the year I had the, you know, uh, in 2019, I would have been in enormous trouble. Um, and, and so I felt very, very aware of that as well. And how many, honestly, how many of our peers and my friends are are not going to come out of this well? Did, did 2020 give you a, a clear sense of what things you'd like to see change in your field? Things you'd want to reinvent or fix? I mean, sure. You know, I'm d- deep, most of my energy has gone to um, working on all of the racial justice stuff that has got to change within our field. And I've been... Um, extraordinarily fortunate to be in conversation with a group that called design action, which is about particularly looking at all of these issues from in the design community. Um, and so that has been, uh, you know, being a part of keeping that conversation going and opening doors uh, and trying to just change how this business runs in order to make it a more equitable field has been a massive part of my life for the last six months. Can you describe when you say changing the way this business is run to make it more more equitable? What are some of the basic things that need to be reexamined and change? Well, um, there are so many, and they have been so graciously laid out for us uh, by We See You. Um, mm-hmm. But right. you know, within our field, I mean, there's an enormous amount of expectation. Um, design has has for a long time been considered. A, Back in the day, it was a gentleman's profession. Um, there was there was not um, any real. The fees are very low. The hours are very long. The assumption is that we would just make it work, and of course, the number of artists that excludes in is incredible. And I, I don't know that any I don't know that anybody had considered how many people just could not be a part of the conversation and how exclusive the storytelling was based on the fact that people had to be able to be completely financially independent before they could even consider this as a field until you get a real, you know, until you get a really lucky break. Um, I mean, you know, even working, uh, I remember the first day I got a, a, a really great off Broadway job and I thought, Oh, here it is at last. I'm going to start to be a little more solvent. And then I saw the fee and I was furious and heartbroken at the same time because it just is 100% untenable and I'm very fortunate Um, there's never been a question that one way or another I would have a roof over my head but it has been a charitable job I mean like literally my profit is deep in the in the 
poverty level until about three or four years ago, which is not what you would think if you look at the the work I've been lucky enough to do. So something there's a there's some radical imbalances about what is expected and what we have accommodated for years and years and years. So there's an, there's an awful lot there, but there's, you know, in terms of equity, we, we have got to get, we've got to get more, the doors open for more people. I mean, if you go backstage at any, any theater on Broadway, that's not equal representation on either side of the footlights. And so, you know, how we both, take care of, take care in the way that we tell stories and make it possible for more people to tell these stories. It's a, it's a big conversation. Another success you had in 2019 was um, helping spearhead the first collectively bargained agreement ever for designers working off Broadway. And I'm curious if there's any, (laughs) yeah, huge score. (laughs) Yes. Can you summarize what you accomplished? Beginning to stare down this this fundamental belief that this is just part of the business this is just what it takes and and starting to take a step back in this time and say that's just it's just unacceptable we are lucky to be artists but we need to be valued as artists and so helping people understand what the actual toll is on the people they have come to expect to be part of their productions um you know, it's a real, it's, I think that whole layer of conversation, which has come immediately out of being a part of those negotiations has been incredibly affecting in these, as we move forward here. Can you tell us other than uh, getting essentially a raise or raising the amount of money that you and your fellow designers would be paid off Broadway? What are, what is a major concession that you got that most of us would not have thought of or would not know you needed as a designer working off Broadway. It's mostly financial, do you know? It has to do with how much equipment we have to have to do the jobs and that we're all expected to own programs that cost an enormous amount of money every year. The basic drafting programs, the the basic sound programs, the equipment that the sound designers are expected to own and bring with them to tech in order to do that work, you know, stuff like that, where it's just like, this is all part of the financial um, issue that we're struggling against, you know, and also there's a certain amount of, and I would call it, I would say that we had mixed success with this, acknowledging that the designers are a major part of the production um, in the sense of the recognition of, for example, uh, the requirement to, you know, put our names on the mailers. We did not succeed at that. So you will see the directors and the actors credited, but the designers' contributions is at the discretion of the theater um, and whether or not they include us in their websites and our bios here and there, you know, things like that, where it's just a basic way of representing the value the designers bring to the... And even though the photo they'll use in the mailer will undoubtedly contain your designs. Exactly. Exactly. They know, they know. It is not to say that the artistic directors don't value our contribution because they do. They a hundred percent do, and they recognize, uh, you know, the the contribution that the that the design elements bring to the production. So it's fascinating, and it's like a cultural shift. And I, I mean, it was. I cannot really describe how generous the conversation was, and of course, it was a negotiation, and all negotiations have tricky moments, but. 
the conversation between the producers and and the designers um, was really generous for the most part. With you know, and we only got we didn't get far enough. We didn't get we didn't see a sea change in how we're being paid, but we saw problems. You know, um, what did you learn about yourself as you stepped into these positions of leadership? It is amazing to me, and again, these things that we haven't named until very. I hadn't named for myself until very recently, but it's extraordinary that considering the different rooms that designers are in, the way they move through the world, what they're looking at globally in terms of their own work and the number of theaters they're in, I just find it remarkable that more designers are not in genuine leadership positions. You've seen so many institutions and worked in so many settings, small, large, um, nonprofit, for-profit, Looking at the other side of the the street, do you get a sense of, without naming any names, the types of institutions that will probably come out of this with good strategies and survive? And what is it that they have, that they're seeing or have the abilities to do? What what are some of the commonalities of of the organizations you think will thrive post-pandemic? I don't know who's going to make it through this. I mean, I genuinely don't know. I am, I'm really terrified. I'm terrified we're going to lose a generation of artists for sure, who just can't afford to sustain the number of people who have moved out of New York, as in given up their apartments. It's a huge number of people, and it's from all levels of theater. You know, everybody in theater, for almost everybody in theater is pretty hand to mouth. And so this kind of a hit, you know, who can come back, who was established enough to come back, all those designers who whose careers were about to about to break all those students who just came out of school and mm. needed to, you know, start to get their toes wet in New York or Chicago or, um, you know, those, I'm so nervous about how many artists we're going to lose, um, in every, in every, I'm very focused on design right now because of this work I'm doing, but in every corner of storytelling and in terms of the institutions, I, I you know, I cannot imagine there are many who are fortunate enough to have an endowment that is going to get them through what is going to turn out to be a two-year closure. I, do, I cannot imagine how how theaters are getting through this. And some of them have been, you know, obviously we are all doing everything we can for every theater that we are closely associated with or have strong relationships with. Um, not too many people have turned to designers to look, you know, to look for a hand that way in this time, but we're here, <laughs> but it's, you know, I don't, I don't have an answer to the question. That's good. I mean, I just don't know who is positioned and well enough to truly survive this. I, I expect, you know, the, the more major theaters, the more major off-Broadway houses will, will make it through in New York. But, um, but past that, I, I don't actually know. Let me ask Rachel then, if you had like a a magic wand and you could pull together the right people, the right circumstances, what would be a healthy place that you'd like to see the 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 artistic and design world start after, you know, once we can get going again? I would love, you know, in my fantasy of all fantasies, um, I would yeah. love for everybody to have a little more time to work on the things they're excited to work on. Uh, you know, I, I, I hate to always bring it back to money, but if people could be relieved a little bit of the financial desperation and urgency in order to have more space to work on things, boy, I would love that. 
I would love that. I would love to not be working on so much stuff at once and, and to be slow it down. There's an incredible benefit to having had to slow down, even though it's been a bit of a manic, crazy time uh, and such an intense full stop, <laughs> which has really rocked everybody's world. But to start it back up, I can't, it's so hard for me to answer this question because it's so hard for me to see forward right now as we continue to get news and projections about how long it could be. Um, you know, I'm lucky to be very lucky to be just beginning work on a, on a project for Baltimore center stage called the garden, which will be done, which will be done whether or not there's an audience there, they're going to build a new production and, and develop this piece of work. And that feels thrilling to me. Um, you know, and there's, there's a bunch of logistics happening around, you know, the tour of Hades town and you know, the machine of Hades town as it continues to move on. And, but the gold of what could be ahead, you know, the opportunity for people to have a little more breath and a little more stability so that they can really lean into the conversations. I don't know if when we come back, there's going to be a flood of work or if people are going to stand a little, a little (laughs) caught in the headlights from having been so fully stopped. Um, I would imagine, you know, once I, I mean, listen, I'm I'm talking to you from my mother's garage, right? So like (laughs) once I get back to my studio, I don't know, you know, the building that's my studio is in feels different. The neighborhood feels different. Last time I was there, which was months and months and months ago, it Mm. it was not a joyful place to be the way it once was. Um, So it's very, very hard for me to, to, picture the way forward. I want to paint you the most beautiful, optimistic picture of a rosy world ahead, but it's pretty hard for me to see it at the moment. You said something, you said something earlier, Rachel, that really struck me, which was the, we're potentially losing a generation of artists Mm -hmm. right now. And I'm curious for emerging designers for, as you said, you know, students getting ready to come out of design school or art school soon, whether it's this year or in the next two, three years, it's hard to even know, but what advice might you give those folks right now? Oh boy. (laughs) Um, you know, this is always, this is always true in this field. Uh, I think the people you see as you, uh, move through, I saw as I moved through, um, the years doing this, that there were, that there were sort of people would sort sort of fall away from this work in waves, Um, because it's very hard, you know, you have to really, it has to be your deepest passion or it's, it's just too hard financially. Um, but also the lifestyle, you know, uh, you have to be suited to so many things. And I, I watched people sort of fall off senior year in college. And then when I was 25, a whole wave of people were like, you know what, this isn't for me. And then again at 30, I mean, it was almost on the fives and 35, and then past 35, it started to be um, when people wanted to have families and they were just like, I can't, I can't do this work when we have families. And, and I think my, my, my worry for the next generation of people is that they don't have the opportunity to really lean in and see if they love it and if they want to do it and if they can make a way of it or if that opportunity is going to not come their way for a little while. I mean, you know, my advice to 
young people in the, in the normal time of life is always to see as much theater as you can and be around as much theater as you can and find your passion and um, find the group of people with whom you're, you most truly speak as an artist, find your voice. And uh, that's just hard to do right now. So uh, my hope is that people will still, my belief, my deepest belief is that theater will come back. It is fundamental to who we are to gather and to hear stories. That thing that happens in a theater when an entire room full of people starts to have their heartbeat synchronized and they start to respond to a play uh, together as a room, there's nothing else like it. There's a re, you know, I've, I've never believed theater will disappear and I don't believe it now. So I, I'm just hopeful that the people for whom this is their most true voice, they will find a way to stay with it until we can get back up on our feet. And then we just don't know when that's going to be. So it was great to hear her, you know, end with a positive, optimistic note about that future of theater. It will survive. It will come back. And yet it was also hard to ignore her concerns, you know, about what's it going to look like and what will it take and who will survive. And, and behind that sort of the, the culture of the theater, I thought we heard so clearly her concerns of things that need to change as, as theaters come back. Right. And she's certainly been in the vanguard of helping create that change. Uh, I love what she said about Re-examining these practices, these labor practices in the theater that are only there because of tradition, right. like these, the 10 out of 12 work days in the theater where, you know, it's 10 out of 12 for actors, but designers have to be there for notes long after mm -hmm. and early in the morning to make the changes before the run through. So, you know, it's, it's impossible for uh, a, a designer to um, have a family with that kind of work day right. and especially to keep a roof over her head if she's working these 15-hour days and barely scraping by, you know? The culture is clearly a concern for her and something she pointed out, whether it was the long hours or the equity issues, diversity issues, women of color. You know, the way I would see it, Pierre Carlo, is it's, it seems to me that these theaters, as they come back, that the mission and the culture and their vision needs to re-examine how those are drafted and what it means culturally to have equity baked into themselves, uh, to treat people differently, to, uh, to, she talked about having space to think and do the work differently, you know? So really cultural transformation is at the forefront of an opportunity as, as these theaters recover. Yeah. And it makes me think, it makes me think of the future theater makers who will create their own companies. It'll be easier for them to bake that equity into their mission statements from the start. I think it's going to be harder for the older theaters to really erase practices they've pursued for decades and uh, right. start from scratch. But, you know, if it weren't for people like Rachel finally kind of getting the brass ring in terms of her career mm -hmm. and uh, people of color finally have, having access to uh, some prestige in the field. Mm -hmm. If it weren't for them, the largely white institution leaders would have no idea that there were any problems with the way they were running things. So right. I'm so grateful yeah. to, to her and totally to her agree. colleagues. I, I think it, it's a, it sets a precedent of how these systems could think about creating support systems for future artists. You know, in the business right. world, they call it building bench strength, or you might have heard this phrase, succession planning. 
but it's that idea of what are mm. we doing to more proactively groom the next generation. Right. And part of that succession planning is it, 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 it takes a visionary leader to realize that, oh, my successor shouldn't be exactly like me. Right. <laughs> right. Or look like yeah. me or sound like me or have ideas or like me. Or look like me or sound like me or yeah. have the same ideas as I. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's hope more of those leaders come into uh, positions yes. of power. Yes. Well, it was... It was sobering to speak with her, but also encouraging yeah. because she is really stepping into her full position of power and leadership and authority and uh, bringing wonderful people with her. Agreed. If you'd like to take a peek at one of Rachel's designs and also enjoy a wonderful play in the process, What the Constitution Means to Me is currently streamable on Amazon Prime. And no, we're not getting any money from Amazon Prime. <laughs> no, you but you should check it out. <laughs> Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving us a rating wherever you get your podcasts so that more listeners can find us. If you admire an artist in your community who's changing the status quo in their field and in your community, let us know. We'd love to hear any more ideas for guests. You can find me on Twitter at PC Talenti, or you can leave us a message on Facebook at Creative Catalyst. If you'd like to read a longer version of our interview with Rachel, please head to uncsa.edu slash art restart. One word. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Rob Kramer. And I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>